All right. So, Liz was not wrong. We're going to continue talking about vision today. But I wanted to start with a bit of a story, or an article, it's actually an article, um, to begin. So, at our regional hui, one of the people who took the session for us, his name's Craig Vernal, and he's currently the senior pastor at Bethlehem Baptist over in Tauranga. But previously to that, he was our national Baptist leader. Um, so he filled the role that currently Charles Hewlett fills. And so Craig's session with us was spent discussing how we can create a healthy and encouraging and empowering culture within our churches, which flows down from creating a healthy, encouraging, empowering culture within our church leadership. And so to start his session, Craig handed out to us this news article and it's an Australian news article written by a guy called Michael Bones, and it's entitled "The Left Needs to Change Its Way, Change the Way It Thinks About Protest." Not really what I was expecting. And the article was written in January 2020, so just before COVID sort of took over everything. And it was written in response to the recent climate change protests that had happened in Australia. Um, and it was really not what I was expecting to be reading here at this hui. I thought we're here to talk about the church, not to talk about politics or climate change or those sorts of issues. This guy, Michael Bones, who wrote the article, he is not a Christian. He's a climate activist, and he describes himself as a progressive throughout the article. But what he does in this article, which I'm going to read some of it to you, he writes a fairly fascinating insight into the life of the church, which turned out to be rather encouraging. So I'm going to read most of it this morning. I've chopped down some bits that weren't so relevant. But this is what he says. On Friday, thousands of Aussies took to the streets for the SACS-GOMO climate protest. It's a natural move for progressive people. We have no other rituals for dealing with grief and sorrow, no shared spaces to gather to console one another. We don't have a network of buildings in which we regularly meet to commemorate, support, uplift and organise for the future we want. So on cue, given the current bushfire crisis, we hit the streets and disrupt. I support the freedom to associate and the right to protest, but I worry that the climate movement is too heavily reliant on street protests when there are other less eye-catching but incredibly powerful ways to organise for social change. Every weekend, about one and a half million of our neighbours quietly come together. They gather in suburbs all across the country, black and white, old and young, rich and poor, in a radical incubator called church. There are more churches in Australia, about 12,400, than schools, about 9,000. Weekly church attendance is sitting somewhere between 4 and 6% of the Australian population. This number matters. The most recent data I could find for New Zealand suggested that about 9% of our population attends church of any faith or denomination. 
Research by Erica Chenoweth, a political scientist at Harvard University, shows that it takes around 3.5% of the population actively participating in a protest to ensure serious political change. The progressive movement could benefit from broadening our definition of what it means to protest. We think it looks like flooding the streets with signs and chants, but we're fighting slogans with slogans. We're excluding everyone who doesn't like big crowds, can't take time off work, or lives too far away. And street protests are inherently unsustainable. As the Occupy movement showed, you can't protest forever. What if we directed the big burst of energy from protests into smaller, more frequent gatherings? What if a life lived in protest involved taking time out every weekend to gather and serve your local community? to join together under a more unified story, young and old, to sing songs, read ancient wisdom literature, med mediate, serve the poor, and develop dense networks with people beyond our immediate interest groups. Because that's what religious organisations, arguably some of the most powerful and protected groups in Australia, are doing. Churches offer be belonging and meaning, they have teams who job, whose job it is to welcome and befriend, befriend new people every weekend. They have incredible sound systems and talented rock bands that perform every weekend. They make thinking f philosophically fun every weekend. They encourage you to explore your life's purpose every weekend. They'll give you a break from your lovely but exhausting children every weekend. In spite of what's said, religious communities offer positive mental health benefits. According to social researcher Hugh Mackay, community service, faith in something larger than oneself, and creative expression are all calm balms to anxiety. So in the wake of the bushfire crisis, while we progressives stoke our anger, vent on social media, and get more stressed and depressed, Churches use ancient practices to care for souls. They make music, share food, read, pray and play, all while reinforcing their core beliefs. Religious people don't need to bring a city to a standstill to make a point, because they're organised. They have a common story that connects them to the same fight, whether they're in Perth or Parramatta, or Kerikeri or Invercargill. They know who they are. The challenge for progressives is this. Can we find a grand narrative, faith or practice to draw a larger circle that can include more of our fellow Australians? Can we unify typically fragmented, issue-based groups into an open, belief-accepting community? Progressive change is hard in Australia. But instead of blaming conservative people who think differently to us, let's look in the mirror our only ritual is the protest. We stomp and shout and wave painted slogans on cardboard to grieve horrific national disasters. How strange this is. Don't blame religious people for being more organised, generous and active than us. We need to get smarter. Let's learn from how they build spiritual community and start doing it because it's good for well-being and it works. It's interesting, isn't it? 
when you read this article written by a non-Christian, someone who doesn't regularly or actively attend church, and he's talking about the way that we live, those of us here in the church, how we lead our lives. And I mean, what does that make you think when you hear this? Does it make you think that maybe we're a little bit hard on ourselves sometimes? Does it make you maybe sit up a little taller and think, actually, this is quite important being here? Does it make you think that maybe your presence can actually make a difference? It made me think all of those things and also made me think that an outside perspective is very insightful every once in a while. This guy, Michael Bones, who wrote this, he makes the church sound special. And as someone who regularly attends church and has done all of my life, that sounds a bit silly to say. Church is special. Because it just doesn't always seem very special, because it's what I always do, what I've always done. But Michael Bones, a non-churchgoer, he sees the church as very special, very unique. A place where people gather around a shared love and purpose, and they spend their time fixing their eyes on something much bigger than themselves. Fixing their eyes on a purpose much bigger than themselves. And where else... In this world, in our society, do we find that sort of connection? But Michael doesn't just see it as special, like a fun novelty. He sees the church as powerful, as a group that can do things, that can make things happen, that can bring change, simply through their connection and their being and doing together. And once again, I think, Having a perspective from an outsider is very insightful. Last week, we put together an awesome list. I'll grab it because I've still got it. We put together this list of things that we said our church will look like or things that we said we will see when we are achieving what we believe God has called us to do. And so it's filled with things like we'll have lots of friends in the community or neighbours will experience neighbourly love. We will know what, our people, what the people of our community need. We will see the gospel preached and see people coming to faith. Um, we'll have complaints. We'll know we're ruffling feathers. People will know that Ham South exists and they will know us by our deeds. And I mean, this is a great list, a very good list of things that we will see. But the next step, what we've got to think about now, is what is required of us to see these things come to fruition. In order to see these things come to fruition, we are going to have to do. We're going to have to work. We're going to have to pray. We're going to have to serve. We're going to have to come together. And I wonder what you might have in your kitty, what you might have in your bag that could help. I'm going to read now from Mark chapter 6, verses 30 to 34, sorry, 44, where we find the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, also known as the miracle of the five loaves and two fish. So if you want to turn there now with me. All right, starting at verse 30. 
The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles didn't even have time to eat. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them and saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, You feed them. With what? they asked. We'd have to work for months and months to earn enough money to buy food for all of these people. How much bread do you have? he asked. Go and find out. They came back and reported, we have five loaves and two fish. Then Jesus told the disciples to have the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of 50 or 100. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up towards heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. They ate as much as they liked, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. So after a busy day for Jesus and his disciples, I think every day was a busy day for them, Jesus invites them away with him to a quiet place to rest a while. They hop in a boat, quietly heading off to the quiet place where they will rest when the crowds spot them. And they're like, there they go. And so they run along the shore and they beat them to where they're going. And Jesus being Jesus, when he sees the crowds, he has compassion for, for them. For they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them again. As it got later, the disciples point out to Jesus, it's getting late, the crowds are probably getting hungry, seeing as this is a quiet place where we should have been able to rest, it's far from everything, so maybe you should send them off to get some snacks. But that's just not how Jesus rolls. These crowds, after all, are like sheep without a shepherd. And if Jesus is their shepherd, then, well, he would have to provide their physical needs as well as their physical needs, their spiritual needs, sorry. So he suggests to his disciples, go on, you guys feed the crowd. And now the scholars, they've really tried to rationalize this story. They've tried to give more logical explanations for how five loaves of bread and two fish could actually feed that many people with 12 baskets to spare at the end. But the scholars have never succeeded. Hence why the story is known as the miracle of the five loaves and two fish. Because there is no way, there is no logical or earthly explanation for the situation. This is not a natural occurrence. It was undoubtedly something supernatural. The disciples' response to Jesus' question, I think, is very fair 
when Jesus says, you feed them, and they're like, with what? It's going to cost us a lot of money to feed this crowd. Presenting five loaves and two fish to a crowd of over 5,000 is like presenting a Band-Aid to a gaping wound. It's not even going to touch the sides. You just wouldn't bother. But Jesus doesn't let his disciples get away with a shrug of the shoulders and a too-hard response. Jesus pushes them. He tells them, well, put your hands in your pockets. Go searching. Go and find what you've got. To their response of that's impossible, Jesus says, well, how much bread do you have? Go and find out. Doing nothing isn't an option. These people need to be fed, and the disciples, they're the ones who will feed them. So the disciples bring back to Jesus the contents of their lunch boxes: Five loaves, two fish. And Jesus doesn't really have anything to say about what they bring back. He just tells them, go ahead, separate everyone into groups on the grass. And so the disciples did that. It says, then Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them. Then breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the disciples bread so that they could distribute it to the people. He also divided up the fish for everyone. They all ate as much as they wanted. And afterwards, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. A total of 5,000 men and their families were fed. And there's nothing more really to say than that. There's kind of no deeper meaning or hidden part to the text. The Gospel of Mark just tells it how it is. How it was that Jesus blessed the bread and fish. The disciples distributed the bread and fish. The crowd ate the bread and fish until they were full. And then the disciples collected up enough bread and fish to fill 12 baskets. After a total of 5,000 men and their families had been fed that day. That is simply what went down. As I said, the scholars have tried to rationalize this. They've tried to put reason to it. They've tried to say, you know, how the bread and fish could stretch that far or how Jesus might have magicked up more bread and fish. But in doing so, in desperately trying to give a natural explanation to the supernatural occurrence, they seem to forget the main player in the story. They seem to forget Jesus, the divine shepherd. The story isn't about how incredibly far the bread and fish would stretch, you know. It isn't about how small they could break it. Rather, the story is about Jesus taking what the disciples had to offer, whatever it was, and him using it to serve the needs of the crowd. Do you remember way back to the beginning of the year, back to the middle of the summer holidays, when we talked for a couple of weeks, about these two verses from the end of Ephesians 3. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The story here in Mark 6 is a great example of the truth of these verses. 
looking out at a crowd of 5,000 people, if someone tells you, hey, we're going to feed these people, so what have you got to offer? If you have one bread in your pocket, you're probably not going to bother mentioning it. Because it's like one drop in the ocean. You know, what difference is it going to make? Instead, you'd probably say, oh, sorry, man, I don't really have anything to offer, but don't worry about me. Don't count me in the number because I can take care of myself. One bread isn't going to feed a crowd, but it will feed you. So you can feel all right knowing that when the plate comes around, you may not have contributed to it, but at least you don't have to take from it. Because you've got your one bread, and you can eat that one bread. And that seems reasonable, right? I mean, I imagine that's what the disciples were probably thinking when Jesus said, you feed them, and they were like, "Mm, no point in mentioning the bread I've got in my pocket because it's not going to go very far. But their response of with what might suggest that they had absolutely nothing to give, absolutely nothing to offer. But when Jesus pushed them, when he said, go and find out how much you've actually got, it showed that they did actually have something in their pockets all along. Ask the disciples what they've got for lunch, and the disciples have enough. They have enough to feed them, probably Jesus as well, probably were looking out for him with their two lo- sorry, two fish and five loaves. They had enough. But put that in the hands of Jesus, the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we could think or ask. There is more than enough for 5,000 men and their families. And ask a ham selfer what they've got to offer towards bringing this vision to fruition And they've probably got a skill or two, maybe got a gifting or a passion, something they're into. And that's great. That's enough for them to do a little something, maybe for themselves, maybe for those who have a similar interest. But put that, put that skill, that talent, that passion, that gifting in the hands of Jesus, the one who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or even think. And it will serve many more beyond just these walls and beyond just this church family. Next week, we have our new regional leader coming to share with us. His name's Peter Foster. Previous to this role, he was the senior pastor at Fakatani Baptist for 16 years. And as a fun fact, his brother is Ian Foster, who led the All Blacks to victory last night. Um, But he's coming to speak to us next week, and I don't want to spoil what he has to say. But in the three months or so that he has been our regional leader, one thing that he's harped on about a little bit whenever we've seen him is a church's sense of corporate self-esteem. So that's like how the church views its sort of influence and position, I guess. And what he's found is that churches generally have a fairly low sense of corporate self-esteem. They often think, like, uh, we're just small. What difference could we make? Or, well, what's the point in even trying? We're not going to get very far. And this sort of le- thinking can lead our churches to being quite insular in that we doubt the impact that we could have, so we don't even try pushing out. This is something that Peter, our regional leader, is very passionate about, that churches would grow their sense of corporate self-esteem and realize 
their incredible worth and incredible position that they have in their communities. So you could say that Peter is quite passionate about the feeding of the 5,000. And he is extremely passionate about the God who can do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or think. And he wants churches to be passionate about this too. He wants churches to know their worth, to know their position in their community, and to use that to believe in it through the power of Christ that is within us, to use that to make a difference. And for Ham South, that looks like looking at this list here that we put together ourselves, looking at this picture of the church that we want to be, and know that we can do that. We can be that if only through God, if only through putting our resource, whatever it might be, in Jesus' hands, the divine shepherd, the one who is able. So this morning as a next step, as a next step towards seeing this come to fruition, I'm letting you know that I'm going to be coming around to ask you what you have to offer. I'm going to be like Jesus. Well, I'm going to find out what's actually in your pockets. So I'm going to look through my church directory, find your number, call you up, find a time to talk. I'm going to come around with my pretty notebook, and I'm going to ask you three questions, which I have here on paper, so I'll give them to Faye, and you can do a take one, pass it on sort of thing. But the three questions that I'm going to ask are, what is your dream or your hope, your vision, whatever you want to call it, for the future? Number two, what do you believe God has gifted you to do? So what maybe passions or talents has he given you? And number three, what do you have in your kitty? What do you have to offer? So please take a copy of those questions. You might have to hang on to it for a while because I can't promise I'll get around everyone super quickly. But you have it there for you to think about over the next wee while as I endeavor to meet with you all. So as a church, we have a great community surrounding us. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, that's right, we do. And we have a great opportunity presented to us to get out and to make a difference in that community. What brings us here on a Sunday is something special and something unique, something that you don't get a lot of in the world these days. It's unlike anything else. Because when we gather here on a Sunday and when we focus our eyes on Jesus, we bring what we've got in our pockets and we put it in the way of the one who fed 5,000 men and their families with five loaves of bread and two fish. When we come into church, when we gather together with what we've got, we come into the presence of the one who can do immeasurably more than we could ever think or ask. So I don't want us to hide our gifts or our talents away. I don't want us to be shy with them. Let's not doubt our God-given passions and abilities. Instead, let's share them with one another. Let's share them together and let's lift them to God. Put our resource in his hands and we can see what he, the one who is able to do immeasurably more, 
Let's see what he might do with them, what he might do with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are an awesome God. We thank you that you are able beyond what we could ever think or imagine. We thank you, God, that you have gifted each of us, that you have given us passions, that you have given us interests, You've given us skills and abilities to do all sorts of things, God. And sometimes we just don't know it until it's called out of us. So Holy Spirit, I pray for each person here as they hold those questions, as they mull over them, that you would speak, that you would stir within them, and that you would bring forth to their minds the things that they have to share. Whatever it may be, Jesus, you ask us to put it in your hands. You ask us to give our resource to you and to watch you do with it incredible things. Thank you, Jesus, that you are with us. Thank you that you have gifted us. Thank you that you have chosen us to be your messengers, to be your hands and feet in this community. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to serve these people well. In Jesus' name, amen.